Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Sargero Show. Uh, we will be here until 5 o'clock today, like every other Saturday. Uh, today we have a, uh, a special guest. It's uh, uh, Professor J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, we're going to be talking about a recent op-ed he did uh, for the New York Times. And so uh, so we're at 3.05. It's about 60, 63, 65 degrees outside today in Attleboro. Uh, and it's wet. It has been raining uh, all day. Uh, it's been pretty windy. Uh, I remember waking up this morning just hearing the wind uh, gust and the trash barrels flying all over the place. But in any case, uh, Professor J.J. Prescott is with us. He wrote a an article in the uh, New York Times about expungement in, uh, in criminal justice. So we're going to uh, get right into it. So, Professor, uh, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, could you tell us, a just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and kind of what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, so that means I do professor-type things. I teach um, uh, uh, courses to law students and um, engage in, in uh, academic research. And most of my research is in the criminal justice area. And I am actually an economist also by training. So um, as a result, I, I spend a lot of time working with data. And in particular, I'm really interested in, in trying to assess the, the consequences on the ground of legal changes. And so I've done, I've done work on, on sentencing. I've done work on, on sex offender registration and notification. And um, I'd say a lot of my work lately has been interested in, in reentry-related work. So how, you know, uh, conditional on the fact that we're going to be putting people into, into prison and convicting them of certain crimes, how can we, how can we uh, uh, go about making their reentry smoother, um, both for their benefit but also for society's benefit? Absolutely. You know, I read uh, the New York Times when I came across your article. I, w I wanted to reach out because I think it was uh, one, uh, me be also, also being an interested in criminal justice. I have my master's in criminal justice. So this is uh, interesting to me. And the article was titled The Case of Expunging Criminal Records. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, kind of what motivated you to, uh, to write this? Kind of how did it all come about? Well, sure. I mean, you, you know, it's not hard to. In fact, I was... Uh watching uh shameless i don't know if you know the television show it's a i think it's on showtime or or something i'm, I'm seasons and seasons behind but recently there was an episode in which somebody who'd recently had a felony conviction and the conviction was the result of a plea bargain because the person needed to get out of out of jail right away in order to take care of her kids and as a result of that even though she was just about to get a job uh, with the interviewer saying, oh, you, this is in the bag, you, you know, you're going to get this job, I just need to send my recommendation up the, up the line, and well, hopefully you can start on Monday. And then she checks the box indicating that she has a felony, and lo and behold, um, the job disappears. And um, for a while now, although in the last uh, couple of years, um, focus and interest in this topic has really grown, but uh, for a long time we've known that having evidence of past criminal activity that you've been had contact with the criminal justice system makes it really tough uh, for uh, for people to, to sort of rebuild and to, to to find jobs and to find housing and that problem has really only gotten worse in part because of the uh, uh, because of, of of information technology. I mean now it's really easy to you know longer have to go to court or to a police station to look at a paper record. Everything can really easily be put up onto the internet and services are out there trying to make sure that information that people are interested in purchasing is available. And, and so not surprisingly, given that people are interested in this information, it's now increasingly easy for employers, potential employers and landlords uh, to find out whether or not somebody has a, a, a criminal record. And, and so it's, it's resulted in a lot of poverty and homelessness and unemployment among those people who have already served their sentence. And the question is, um, from our perspective, is, is this good policy? I mean, is there something really beneficial about people having this information? I, I think it's pretty clear that they want the information, but that's not the same thing as saying that, um, that society is better off because the information is out there. And, um, and uh, you know, what are the strategies um, by which, uh, again, on the condition that we're actually going to uh, convict people of certain crimes, how can we, once they've paid their debt, 
reincorporate them into society so that they're productive uh, citizens. Because I don't, I don't think anybody thinks that it's good policy for us to to to, to conclude that if um, if you commit a, a crime, maybe even a misdemeanor, that from then for the rest of your life you should have difficulties that basically never go away. Um, and and so uh, so a lot of interest lately uh, at uh, pretty much every state has been focused on how do we improve the prospects of people, an appropriate set of people, not everybody, um, but an appropriate set of people with criminal records can start to um, rebuild. And one of the one of the ways people have have proposed are, are clean slate initiatives that once you've served your time uh, and a suitable amount of time has passed since you've had any interaction with the police, you should be able to start fresh. Now, that doesn't mean that if you commit another crime, a court won't take into account um, the fact that you have a criminal record in sentencing you, but maybe not everybody needs to be able to find out that you have that um, past. So it's related to increasing concern about privacy and, um, and the ability to start fresh. Absolutely. Why do you think there still exists uh, that stigma? I mean, even after someone's been released, has paid their debt to society, in your opinion, why do you think that there's still a stigma about, um, you know, recently uh, released inmates and that, you know, everyone always says, oh, yeah, they need to be productive members of society, but yet nobody wants to give them that chance? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I, I, you know, I, I can't, I can, I can kind of give you my my opinion on this, although um, uh, it's, it's, it's really speculation on my part, I think it comes from a couple of different um, sources. I mean, one, I think, is the increasing inequality uh, in our society. As a result, um, it's more and more likely that, you know, if you don't have a criminal conviction, all of the people you hang out with aren't going to have criminal convictions either. And um, if you do have a criminal conviction, you're more likely to be around other people with criminal convictions because we know that having those records is associated with socioeconomic status. And, and so not surprisingly, um, uh, people who don't have records, uh, m- you know, find it more and more unusual uh, in some ways uh, to, to, to potentially interact with somebody with a record. Um, the, the, the other part of, I mean, that's just on the stigma side. Um, I mean, I do think there's a lot of um, uh, changes in our society and how we perceive things that are the result of the Internet and um, various types of panics uh, that, that uh, result from uh, the way we now communicate and means and, and things that also, I think, generate fear. Um, but, I, but in a sense, at least for some of these questions, it's not just a stigma because at least um, employers, for example, uh, fear that if they hire somebody with a criminal record, they may wind up being on the hook um, liability-wise if somebody commits a crime down the road. So, you know, there's a, a, a claim that a victim could bring against an employer called the negligent hiring claim, where, you know, if you hire somebody um, and put them into a position where they could um, harm someone and you knew that they had a criminal record and yet you hired them anyways, you might potentially be on the hook. And that, and that potential liability you know, even if it's kind of a long shot, is enough where employers can say, hey, you know, I just don't, I don't want to deal with this as a possibility. You know, if I know something about someone, uh, then I'd, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather just pass on them and find somebody who doesn't have a record. And that way I can, I can kind of um, uh, point to the fact that they had a, a clean record and I had no idea that they might engage in, in some kind of crime and victimize somebody. Now, um, I mean, if that's true, though, I mean, part of uh, what I think might be going on here is that that uh, employers, for example, um, if if other employers are looking at criminal records, then an employer who otherwise might not care now feels like, well, listen, I, I can't be the only person who's not looking at criminal records because then as a result, my entire staff will have uh, people with, with criminal records. I'll be the only one who who is hiring, um, and, and maybe, that's not, maybe that's not great for a variety of reasons. And so if everybody else is doing it, I ought to do it too. Um, and, uh, it, I mean, if that's the dynamic, then we might think that something that disrupts that dynamic, where somebody comes along and says, hey, why don't we just all agree, A, that you know, maybe we should change how we think about negligent hiring and, and make it so that employers aren't going to be liable so that they're encouraged 
actually to hire people who have records, but B, um, why don't why, you know why don't we pass laws that you know when we objectively think there's 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 good evidence to support the fact that these people aren't dangerous, they don't pose a threat, why not um, why not um, uh, have a law that kind of compels us all to to, to look past um, some of these records? And the clean slate initiatives, I think, are designed to do that. I mean, they're not really. They're not really designed to, to at least uh, I don't think, they're not designed to, to kind of reduce the stigma, although they may do that indirectly. Instead, they're designed to, um, uh, to, to encourage employers and, uh, and, and potential landlords um, uh, to, uh, to look at the actual facts in front of them and to stop relying on proxies for, uh, uh, for whether they're going to be a good employee or a good uh, tenant by um, by looking at a criminal record. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we are in studio um, with Professor J.J. Uh, Prescott from the University of Michigan uh, Law School. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get back, and we'll get more in-depth with uh, the article he recently wrote uh, in the New York Times about uh, expungement of records. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, folks, to the Paul Segarro Show. Again, we're in, uh, in studio talking with Professor J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan Law School, discussing uh, the spudgment of uh, criminal records, uh, essentially, uh, an article he wrote in, in the New York Times, an op-ed. Uh, Professor, before uh, we went to break, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the liability issue, of course, with uh, employers, but I think there's. you also mentioned uh, it's not just employment that could affect these individuals, but also... Uh, uh, landlords and actually getting apartments and even on a, another scale, a higher education. So it's not just the empl- employment that it's affecting these individuals, is it? Oh, that's right. I mean, you know, you can imagine any type of institution that might want to know about this, you know, somebody who might um, uh, uh, be interested in a, in a background check and knowing uh, the history, and that would include higher education. It would include um, not just employers, but certain kinds of licensing. So, you know, that's another big issue um, that I think legislatures and, and states are starting to tangle with, which is trying to, to figure out how to deal with licensing restrictions. So there are, you know, in Michigan, for example, if you want to be a barber, you have to have a barber's license. I think that's true in most places. And um, some of the, 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 the professions that I think a lot of uh, people who are, who, are, who are coming from having spent time in in prison or with a recent conviction, you know, might be quite attractive to them, might be right off off limits right from the very uh, get-go. And so, sure, employment, um, housing, um, uh, 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 educational opportunities, and, 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 and other kinds of government benefits as well. Now, I don't, I don't, maybe you could speak for Michigan in particular, but is that means for uh, disqualifying someone automatically depending on um, their record, that is, uh, whether it be higher education or uh, in housing, is, the, is there a legal basis that a landlord could say no, uh, decline someone specifically because of uh, their record, or do they usually find some different reason to decline that individual? Yeah, so, I, I mean, in most cases, I mean, the, you, you may be able to find examples. There are particularly uh, particular licensing exceptions that say, you know, you have to have a clean record in order to do this, but for private actors who are thinking about this, in general, having a blanket policy that says, I just don't, just don't hire people with criminal records. I, I don't look beyond that at all. I mean, in, uh, the, the EEOC, for example, says that's an illegal employment practice. Why? Because that kind of blanket rule um, has consequences uh, for protected uh, classes, in particular um, race and potentially sex as well. Um, so if you just uh, in, in a lot of places, if you just say, I'm not going to hire um, uh, uh, people with criminal records, the effect of that might be um, in particular places that, you know, as a practical matter, you're going to be much less likely to hire um, a black applicant than you would a white applicant, for example. And, um, and so that is usually thought to be um, something you can't do. Uh, I mean, at least put that way. Like, I just don't, as a blanket rule, hire people with records. On the other hand, um, it's certainly something you can take into account when trying to decide whether, you know, this is the right person for the job. In the same way, um, there are other uh, considerations that can, that can play in. And so, sure, I mean, for certain kinds of positions, 
you might say, listen, my, you know, my, my customers won't like the fact that this person has a particular record and um, given the nature of this job and the fact that they have this record, um, it's just not going to work. And that's a more considered type of multiple factor type of test that, that a lot of people are out there um, uh, uh, using. And I'm not sure that the, the consequences are all that different in the end. Got it. Yep. Uh, in in your in your article, you mentioned that there was an empirical study that you guys did. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, this study and kind of what your conclusions were and the results that you found? Sure. So you know, one of the things. So from my perspective as a law professor and somebody who's interested in in reform, is it's, it's starting to think about how we would structure these laws. And um, a lot of states have the opportunity to get a, a, a record expunged. The real problems with the existing laws are, first, they're narrow. So if you have certain kinds of convictions, you just, you just can't seek out an expungement. And oftentimes, if you have more than um, one con- uh, conviction or if the convic- conviction is relatively recent, you can't um, seek out um, an expungement. So you can imagine if you, if you have a criminal conviction and um, uh, either you serve a short time in jail or prison or you don't even serve jail, but for the next 10 years, you can't find a job because you have that record. The fact that you can get expungement 10 years later isn't all that helpful because by then, you, you know, uh, your ability to build up experience and, 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 um, and, and wealth has really, been, um, has really been set back. So, so one possibility or one area of focus is the substantive scope of these laws. Are they, are they applying to just a narrow share of people um, who, who are suffering from um, uh, the consequences of, of having a criminal record. The other um, aspect is um, the process by which one gets their record expunged. And until last year, most of the processes have required that a person with a criminal record jump through a bunch of hurdles. And some of those hurdles take money and time. So well, one of the, the people we consulted for the um, study we did used to work in, in Western Michigan would describe the filing fee that was um, required in order to seek out an expungement. And that filing fee was just 50 bucks. And for a lot of people, putting together 50 bucks takes months. And so it's a little bit of a poverty trap. You, d- you don't have enough money or enough time um, uh, to, or, or the ability to hire a lawyer to go through the process of expungement because you don't have a job. And you don't have a job because you can't get the expungement. And, um, and so... The, the, the study was um, uh, looking at a couple of things. So in the state of Michigan, there was a uh, – uh, that's where the study um, – where we, we, we got the data for our study. In, in Michigan, there was an application process, and the first question we um, looked into was uh, of the people who were eligible. And that took a lot of time to actually figure out, based on criminal histories, who was eligible for expungement. What percentage of people are applying for expungement? And the answer we came up with, depending on how you, how you, how you cut it and how you count, is very low. So, I mean, uh, uh, our, our sort of preferred estimate is about 6 or 7% of people who can get an expungement um, within the first five years of being able to get an expungement get one. And if you kind of look at the distribution of when people get one, probably the most um, a percentage of people who ever get an expungement once they become uh, eligible is, is uh, 11, 12 percent, something like that. So, uh, so one question, I mean, so uh, one way to think about that is, well, maybe people just don't need expungement. But there's, there's a lot of um, evidence to suggest that a lot of people who are eligible are, are suffering. So what's the other potential question? Uh, that the process is just too difficult. The hurdles are just too high. And in the paper, we actually kind of lay out what you have to do and the number of steps uh, that you have to go through in order to do this. You have to make four copies. You have to mail copies to a bunch of different places. You have to, you know, you have to wait. You have to follow up. There are multiple stages. And, um, uh, and, and so this, it turns out, is a real problem. I mean, based on interviews we, we did, we found out that like, a lot of people just kind of drop out because they, they, they just can't find the time um, uh, to get it done or they're not uh, sophisticated enough without help to get the, the process uh, done, which can be confusing and intimidating. The second set of questions we looked at are, you know, what happens to people who actually do get expungement? So this small class of people who do, 
Um, is there a reason to think that somebody who, who gets an expungement might actually be dangerous? Because that's one of the arguments people have used for, um, for not wanting to expand the scope of potential um, record clearing is that people who you know, have these records might wind up being um, uh, more dangerous on average. And what we found following the people in Michigan who, who have got expungements, now realize um, they, uh, under Michigan law, you have to wait five years. You have to have no other interaction with the criminal justice system, no other convictions between um, uh, when you were either released uh, from jail or prison or your conviction, whichever is later, and um, uh, 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 when you uh, put your application in for expungement. It turns out that the likelihood of recidivism, of returning to crime, is actually lower than the likelihood that the average adult in Michigan um, engages in crime for the first time. So at least in Michigan, people who, who have expungements are safer than you know, some random person you're going to pick, uh, pick off the street. Um, and, and then the final question we looked at was, you know, does this matter? Like, uh, people may get expungements for lots of reasons. Um, is there any reason to think that the arguments in favor of them, that it makes it easier for them to get jobs, um, uh, is actually true? Do we have any evidence of that? And really, there hadn't been any evidence um, other than just anecdotal stories about people talking about, you know, I got an expungement, and it was easy for me to get, or easier for me to get a job, and so now I'm employed, and I don't think I would have been if I hadn't had my record cleared. We find that in the first few quarters after people have expungement, their likelihood of being employed goes way up and their wages actually increase as well. So to, no matter how you uh, measure it, um, uh, uh, it seems that people who receive expungements wind up looking much um, uh, more economically uh, strong um, just a few quarters uh, later. Interesting. Is there is there also uh, I'm just thinking uh, in terms of the you said there was a low percentage of applications. Is there also the possibility that maybe uh, these individuals that are being released don't uh, even know that they could have their record expunged? That's right. So you're 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 totally right. I should have included that in one of the hurdles. So, uh, in fact, we list that in, in the paper that, you know, a process like this. <clears throat> I mean, a, a lot of people who would benefit most from expungement, um, you know, they're not, they're not lawyers. They're not, they're not experts in, um, in criminal justice reentry policies. They may have no reason to think that there's actually a way they can clean up their criminal record. In fact, it kind of seems like if you think about it, it kind of seems like it's one of those things that you, you know, if you could get rid of it, you know, you probably would have heard about, but it turns out a lot of people don't know. So, so you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, and I think one of the things we'll probably wind up talking about is, changing these laws in the direction to, to, to remove those hurdles, including the fact that some people may not even know um, about these laws by moving towards automatic expungement. And, um, and what automatic expungement is, is, is the idea that, you know, after a certain amount of time passes for people who are, uh, you know, who are eligible, the state itself will go ahead and remove your record. In other words, the record follows you for a little while, but not forever. Only to a certain point where people think it continues to possibly be relevant. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we are in studio with Professor J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back. We'll get, uh, talk a little bit more about the expungement of criminal records and uh, his article. And so uh, stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sogiro Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, currently, we're talking with Professor J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan uh, Law School, and we're talking about the expungement of uh, criminal records. And before the break, uh, we discussed uh, the study and his results that he found. Um, one thing that I was curious about is, like, we talked about uh, maybe some of the, uh, the individuals being released not knowing about um, the fact that they could have this expunge. It almost makes you... Um, wonder if maybe that could be a program even implemented in correctional uh, facilities, you know, and we talk about the resources that are available uh, to these individuals when being released, it would make makes you wonder if there should be an educational component about um, expungement in our correctional facilities. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it certainly couldn't hurt. I mean, one of the problems with that idea is just the passage of time. I mean, very few places contemplate allowing you to get an expungement sort of upon release. 
uh, in the state of Michigan, you would need to kind of keep it in mind and remember it five years later. Uh, but sure, I would think that especially for those where it's a real hurdle, um, something like that um, could uh, could potentially be um, uh, quite helpful. Absolutely. And uh, before the break, we were, you know, I mentioned uh, briefly the uh, automatic uh, expungement. Do you think um, uh, that the automatic expungement uh, it should be automatic? Uh, does it should it vary depending on what someone was convicted for? What do you feel is the best option? Uh, that should be implemented or that could be implemented? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a difficult question because, uh, I mean, cr- there are different crimes, there are different kinds of criminals. Um, the reason why people look to records um, may vary. Some people may fear being the victim of violence. Some may fear being the victim of property crimes. I mean, there, there are potentially lots of different reasons uh, for thinking that an automatic expungement makes sense and that it should operate in the same way. What I can tell you is that um, that currently there are a number of states, I mean, just in the last few months, a couple of states have passed laws like this. So in 2018, Pennsylvania passed a law, um, the first of, uh, of this kind, um, in which misdemeanors, people with misdemeanors, will have them automatically expunged after um, certain kinds of misdemeanors, will have them automatically expunged after 10 years. Now, the initial response to this which, by the way, you know, it's pretty easy to get through the legislature, um, was, gosh, just misdemeanors? Well, you know, why not, why not felonies? And also 10 years? I mean, 10 years is a long time to wait before you can um, stop checking boxes and answering questions um, uh, that employers ask you. And I, I should add that one of the nice things about expungement is it actually gives you the right um, even though you still have the conviction, it gives you the right to say that you don't have a conviction when somebody when somebody asks you, um, and and that can be um, uh, really important. So since Pennsylvania, um, actually, there you know Utah just passed a similar law. California is looking at passing a quite uh, a, a really a much broader law in which within a year or two you could um, certain crimes are going to be automatically expunged. And um, I, I was just talking to a legislator here in the state of Michigan who is working uh, on collaboratively both sides of the aisle on a, an expungement bill, and that bill will allow um, misdemeanors to be uh, expunged, uh, as many misdemeanors as you get. So you can continue to get misdemeanors, and you know, as long as you have gone at the end three years, I think is the proposal, without having a new misdemeanor, you can get your old misdemeanors expunged and, um, and as many as six-plus felonies expunged. So you can get two uh, violent felonies, two property uh, felonies. So the thinking here is that, yeah, we should treat these things well. Oh, and I, and I should say those violent felonies and, and serious property felonies might, uh, for example, require a seven to ten years of time passing before um, at least this proposed draft legislation would allow an automatic expungement to, uh, to occur. So at least the way legislators are thinking about this is let's treat these crimes differently. Uh, let's get the automatic um, uh, expungement uh, uh, machinery in place, uh, and then we'll, we'll try to, to divvy, up, um, uh, divvy up different kinds of offenses into different uh, uh, groups, depending on how serious we, uh, we think they are and how um, much pushback we'll get from various groups on, on letting these expungements happen. Um, sooner, but I but I will say that you know the the the, the evidence out there, um, and you know and and uh, you know from a criminology perspective, is listen if you've gone a certain amount of time without having committed new crimes, you can consider yourself redeemed, and and by redeemed I just mean that we know behaviorally that people if they go a certain amount of time without committing a crime are le- a much less likely to go back to crime. Now what we don't necessarily know is what those time periods are by crime. And um, it's not even clear to me, for example, that a very serious crime is um, that you're not going to return to baseline earlier than, let's say, a less serious crime. I mean, I think that makes it's kind of commonsensical that that would be true, but we don't, don't think we actually know that. Yeah, and, and there's one thing I would just want to uh, mention to our listeners, too, is that Considering ten years, so if if we're just, I, I would, I like, I like to just put things in perspective. So if if someone was, uh, just picture someone convicted at twenty years old, okay, say they serve 
say five years, they get out, they're 25 years, they're 25 years old. Now they're waiting 10 years for that expungement. They're 35 years old, and now they're at a point where, okay, let's see if I can get a better uh, occupation, a better job, or even start a career. But right now you're at 35 years old. You know what I mean? So it's it's a huge difference, and it's a topic that I always found uh, interesting. You know, there's, um, you know, I, I mentioned to a couple of my friends in, uh, uh, in passing when we were talking about criminal justice reform, I go, just picture someone being, you know, convicted prior to technology and then being released afterwards, how different the world is. Or, you know, and in this case, how difficult it would be 10 years later to now being almost on a, a level playing field, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think it used to be that the result of kind of lack of, of technology and the ability to kind of, you know, to move and really leave behind a past life, you know, move from the East Coast out to California where you pretty much start fresh. Um, mistakes that you make when you're young um, don't necessarily affect you for the rest of your um, uh, life. And in a world in which a mistake you make when you're 17, 18, 19, 20, when I think everybody rec- recognizes that, you know, somebody who's 18 and does something uh, silly is not, is not the same person, or, you know, maybe even not silly, maybe even quite serious, not going to be the same person um, uh, 12 years down the road. You, you know, their brain is going to be different. Um, their, uh, their, their focus is going to be different. Um, it's, it's just going to be a different person. And yet by the time, you know, we're at that person, we're going to have somebody who has spent 10 years um, underemployed or maybe even unemployed, um, not able to kind of develop the skills uh, that would, we would want. And, and one of the things we do with reentry policy is, is uh, we kind of implicitly acknowledge that, that you know, in order for people to, um, to turn away from crime, they have to be really invested in society. They have, they have to have opportunities to provide for themselves and their family uh, to live the good life. If they're not living a good life, um, you know, the threat of a criminal conviction or maybe even jail time is not, is not the same uh, sort of thing. And an even worse scenario is we wind up with, um, you know, sort of subcultures where people, you know, the rest of society doesn't want me. The only thing I can really do to make money is engage in, in crime. Uh, we wind up kind of creating a subculture of people who think of crime as the only way to go. And, um, and you know, you really run that risk by leaving somebody hanging for their, their entire 20s without a way to, to provide for themselves. Absolutely. I mean, if the goal is to make these individuals a productive members of society, which ultimately I feel like that's the goal, uh, we need to uh, remove some of these barriers that are, that are um, uh, keeping them from becoming those members of society. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, one, one, one argument you'll sometimes hear is, listen, these people committed the crimes it's not, no, nobody's claiming that they didn't. They, they did the crime. You know, why should we forget about it? I mean, shouldn't they pay um, and, and potentially continue to pay? They hurt somebody or they took something that wasn't theirs. You know, why should I bend over backwards to make their lives better? And, you know, I, I understand that um, argument. I think a lot of people have that kind of reaction. But from a completely selfish perspective, you don't want people to continue suffering when they're um, out in society. I mean, once you feel like you know, they have, uh, uh, have paid a certain amount of a uh, certain price in prison um, or with some other kind, uh, kind of sanction, right? And, and believe me, the U.S. is, is excellent at, at loading up really heavy sanctions on, on people. We do it far more than pretty much every other um, country. Then we're releasing them. And when they're out, they are potentially a, uh, a threat, a threat to you and your family. And what you want to do at that point is not because they deserve it or because, you know, we want them to be treated fairly. We may have those feelings as well, but also because we want them paying taxes and we want them raising children that are healthy and, and productive and not dysfunctional and not exposed to crime and bad and all of the things that make the other people that are around us every day. Like if you care about those things, then um, running people into the ground for the rest of their for the rest of their lives it may make you feel better in the short run, but actually makes you less safe and less wealthy um, in the long run. Absolutely, and I would just like to. I know we discussed it a little bit earlier, but I'd like to reiterate it again. Uh, from your study, uh, did you guys? 
the specific uh, percentages in terms of recidivism, that is, uh, the, these individuals that had the opportunity to have their records expunged, uh, what, what was that res- uh, recidivism rate like? What did it, um, kind of what were the results that you guys found in, in, uh, in the process of this? Sure. I mean, in some ways, it doesn't sound great, if you ask me, because I think people don't realize how, how many people out there have, have interactions with the, the criminal justice system. But on a, on a five-year uh, plan, somebody who's had an expungement could have anywhere from like a one to like four percent chance of, of being rearrested and uh, convicted for another uh, misdemeanor or crime. And the truth is, is that that's actually lower than the likelihood that somebody, you know, just a, a regular adult between 18 and 64 will have of, of committing a crime. That, that number is more like 6%, at least in the state of Michigan. Um, so um, now there, there are a couple of uh, reasons that an expungement might, might be, there are a couple of ways in which expungement might be related to, um, uh, to that low rate of, of recidivism. And, and the claim here is not that, that, that these people are, you know, they're not going to commit any crimes. The, the claim is that you don't actually learn anything by knowing that they have a record. Um, if anything, that class of people um, are less likely to commit a crime than somebody who, who doesn't have a record who's an adult. Um, uh, but, one, you know, one reason why the, 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 the level of recidivism may be low is just, again, after you've spent so much time under the law, say five years, not committing a crime, we know that, you know, you're in your, at least in your, probably in your 20s, maybe in your 30s, and you haven't committed a crime for five years, a person who is in that category just doesn't commit crime very often. And so there's a sort of a, a low baseline. So by the time you're actually ready to, to have your record expunged, you're pretty much no longer a threat. But there's also a separate um, story here, which is the things that we usually do with reentry policy to actually improve the likelihood that people don't recidivate and return to crime, like helping them get jobs, helping them get stable housing, and you know, keeping them from being isolated, making sure they kind of reintegrate into society. Expungement also does those things, right? Because you're more likely to get a job. And so we can't really disentangle those in our study. We don't know whether or not the low recidivism rate is just because the people who get expungement are you know, low risk to begin with. You know, we're giving it to people who have criminal records, but they're, they're people who are just not a, a, a threat. Um, or if in giving it to them, we're actually making them less likely uh, to recidivate. And, you know, it's probably some of both, um, uh, given what we know from other kinds of reentry policies. But, um, but the, the, the important point here is that if you're sort of worried about, um, uh, about people with criminal uh, records, uh, at least in the existing uh, uh, policies that are out there, the people who are getting expungements in states like Michigan um, don't pose uh, a significant threat. Absolutely. Folks, we are in studio uh, with Professor J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan uh, Law School. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We'll start to wrap uh, things up in our discussion involving uh, expungement of criminal records and essentially uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, so stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, welcome back, folks, to the Paul Sogaro Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock today, of course, like every other Saturday. Uh, we're in studio uh, with Professor J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan uh, discussing uh, a recent op-ed that he had uh, that he wrote for the New York Times discussing expungement. Uh, Professor, we've talked a lot about the benefits, but I would also, are there any drawbacks from having, uh, an ex- uh, having the expungement of uh, criminal records? Uh, you know, I'm 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 a law professor. There are always drawbacks, right? Everything's a trade-off, and and here there's no there, it's no different. I mean, there are a, a set of people who, you know, who who want to know this kind of information, and this is you know there are increasingly uh, types of information uh, that people want that we don't actually think does them any good. And may make them worse off, but that's not that's not um, the same thing as uh, saying that they don't that they don't want it and they won't um, uh, be upset that they that they can't access it. So I'm sure that there are um, uh, going to be people out there who who will continue to say, "I really want this information. If I don't have this information, um, it will be a problem for me and my business or my um, you know the, you know my property that I'm 
um, lending out, uh, letting out. There, there's also a potential um, other set of issues uh, that it's important to, to, to worry about and to spend some time thinking about. So in, in other contexts, like Ban the Box, which is the campaign um, that, you know, it's been enacted in many cities that allows you to not check a, a certain box. You can still be asked about and have your record checked, but you don't have to check a box on an application indicating that you have a felony conviction or a conviction of any sort. You know, one of the, 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 the lessons we've learned from that is if people really want to know about somebody's criminal past and they can no longer rely on the person or, in this case, maybe um, records, uh, state records to, to, to identify uh, people who, who, um, who have records, they might wind up uh, using a proxy. And unfortunately, a proxy might be race or youth, and they might use that instead. And there have been other examples um, where criminal records have not been available under certain circumstances, and there's some evidence that, um, that when that happens, uh, the consequences are basically good for white men with criminal records and bad for black men who don't have criminal records because, um, you know, the, the, the employer just starts to use that as a proxy. And so that's one concern is that, you know, there'll be some kind of compensating strategy that employers use, that landlords use. And, of course, that strategy is probably illegal, but that's not the same thing as saying that it will be easy to stop. Yeah, I think also given uh, being in 2019 too, I, f- I feel like whether it's uh, someone applying for a job or uh, you name it, anything that would require a background, I feel like an employer is almost guaranteed to to do a quick Google search, uh, search of that person. And although the the record might be expunged, you know, depending on the situation, I bet you there's still articles out there or newspaper archives of you know that individual and given the situation that they were in too. So there's also just me thinking out loud now, I feel like that's yeah. also another um, idea. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that was actually one of the things we were interested in, in, you know, indirectly getting at, because there are a bunch of people who say, you know, you can't, can't put the cat back in the bag. Oh, that's not the right metaphor, but you can't, you know, you can't, um, you can't undo um, uh, a, uh, a criminal record once it's out there on the Internet. And, um, and, and so that is an empirical question, and it may be that that changes over time. So uh, you can imagine a law that makes it a, a crime to actually disseminate information that's been expunged. Uh, you can imagine other strategies to try to uh, essentially increase privacy. But you're right. As the Internet changes and expands, it may be that um, record clearing can't, you know, it can, you, you, you can't release that information to the public and then expect to be able to undo it five years down the road. For example, so you know, in in twenty years, we might need a different strategy. Yeah, and, and these expungements is that um, given the situation what we have currently? Are, is it uh, at the state level, or is it going across uh, to the federal? Meaning, if you were to get like a federal clearance, uh, is it expunged at that level too, or is it just typically uh, at the state given uh, the situation? Yeah, it's it's, a, it's pretty much state policy at this point. To my knowledge, there's no. There's no federal form of expungement. Of course, there are there are pardons and there are ways to undo convictions. <clears throat> but what we're talking about here is a situation in which somebody um, has a conviction. The government continues to know about the conviction, but the, the record net becomes sealed at some point, and you're allowed to, to present yourself as if you don't have one. And um, and and at this point, that is uh, pre- pretty much a state enterprise. Absolutely interesting. Um, now, if someone's interested in in supporting this cause, uh, in terms of like a grassroots effort, what can they do? How can they assist in this um, in, in this cause? Great. So, I mean, uh, uh, in uh, I actually think that you know, unlike a lot of my topics, this is a really hot topic in state legislatures right now. Um, and so, you know, some of the stuff I write on, it's something at the federal level or in the courts, and it's really hard for me to think about how somebody um, who wants to get involved could get involved um, at the grassroots level. Here, that's not true. So, you know, um, wherever you are, if you're interested in um, working on these topics or supporting, uh, supporting uh, uh, these initiatives, I think you just need to know the buzzwords. 
and then um, and then look for local organizations that are interested in criminal justice reform. They exist in pretty much every state. There are campaigns going on in way more than half the states right now. Um, so you want to look for something like clean slate, clean slate initiatives, um, uh, uh, expungement. Uh, in Michigan, it's called set aside, but I think that's not uh, typical uh, language. Um, record clearing, and and you want to look to to find out what you know how you can show up at legislative hearings, because right now there are legislative hearings um, uh, going on. Just two weeks ago, I was visiting my sister in Washington, D.C., and I got a message from a legislator in um, New Mexico who told me that um, uh, the, the work that my, my co-author and I, Sonia Starr, had done that was the basis of the, the op-ed helped him convince uh, New Mexico's governor to sign a, um, an expungement law in that state. Uh, and, and there had been four previous attempts, all of which had been vetoed. So this is a, this is a hot topic. Um, right now, if there's an expungement law already in place, there are groups that are pushing for automatic expungement and to increase the scope so that, um, uh, so that does, you know, the waiting period um, is not quite as long and that it applies to a larger number of convictions. And, and there's a separate issue about sort of non-conviction records because increasingly as information becomes easier to get, um, it's more and more possible to find out whether somebody had been arrested or has been arrested even if they are never convicted. And so there's also starting to be a movement to figure out how to control those kinds of records. So here's, so, you know, yeah, we, we're just telling people that you were arrested by the police, but we're not telling anything, anything um, uh, them anything else. So there's movement on those topics as well. Absolutely. And if uh, if anyone listening is interested in expungement at the Massachusetts level, uh, meaning if you're if you uh, uh, want to get a record expunged, you can go to mass.gov or you can just do a quick Internet search of Massachusetts expungement. It will bring you up to um, uh, the mass.gov website and give you options if, if you qualify for an expungement um, and whatnot. So they give a kind of step by step, if you will. I just did a quick search of it. Um, but, you know, you know, it's. I'm always interested in criminal justice reform. I mean, when we look at, uh, I mean, some states, uh, people who are being released don't even have the right anymore to vote, you, you know, on a, on a on that level. And, and we're going, we're talking about the, kind of the expungement. I mean, when I ran for state rep, I was advocating for kind of mental health reform as it related to the criminal justice system. And it's, there's so many issues and there's so, so much uh, evidence that support uh, these claims. And yet, I feel like there's a stalemate or like it, it, it amazes me how long it takes uh, one, just a bill in general to become law, but a bill to become law when there's so much supporting evidence um, in terms of the benefits that support that law. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's, it's for a long, long time. We have been a society and a democracy that has made decisions based on sort of gut instincts. And um, it turns out that a lot of our gut instincts aren't aren't right. And um and that's true, certainly in the criminal justice area, where if we're trying to figure out how to make a productive, healthy, vibrant society um, where uh, where people have a second chance and can make mistakes and yet uh, turn into safe, um, productive citizens, um, a lot of the policies that instantly come to mind turn out to be uh, really destructive. And I think we're slowly moving towards um, using more evidence-based arguments um, but I'd say, like, you know, in terms of one uh, infrastructure type of investment we should be making, it has a lot to do with data. I mean, one of the reasons why it, nobody has written a paper like what my, me and my co-author wrote um, was uh, that, you know, the data just isn't available. It's too hard to get from the state. If they can give it to you, it's not in great shape. And, and so if you're thinking about uh, supporting something that's going to it's going to lead to more evidence on all manner of potential criminal justice reform. It would be making um, uh, data about criminal justice institutions collected by criminal justice institutions um, uh, available to researchers who, who can then use it to, to kind of build cases for and against certain policies. Absolutely. And uh, is this kind of a, a main project you're working on? Do you have any uh, current other projects or future projects you, you wish to, uh, to work on or accomplish? Well, yeah, I mean, I can give you just a general uh, flavor of where I think my work is headed, and it has to do less with um, prison and more to do with um, the use of information as a tool of, of essentially isolation and punishment. Um, you know, you see this, uh, the kind of the beginning of this was with uh, sex offender registration and notification uh, type laws, where we allow people to, 
to, to go out into the world, and yet we use information and um, other kinds of ties to, to restrict their movement. And this is a, a, a great innovation from the perspective of government because it's cheaper when you don't actually have to spend $30,000 a year to keep somebody in, in prison. I mean, it's really expensive. Like We could just be paying people a, a healthy income, um, and instead we spend $30,000, $40,000 a year to keep them in prison. Um, why not use information and technology and GPS monitoring and let those, you know, let those people walk around in society where we don't have to uh, pay for them? And I think this is increasingly the direction, you know, we may see prisons shrinking and incarceration shrinking, and yet um, uh, the, the, the role of government in the lives of people may actually be increasing, and I think that's an important topic going forward. Absolutely. Professor Prescott, I would like to thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, and as a little addition to the show, we always ask uh, our guests if they could talk to anyone from history and ask them one question, who they uh, want to uh, talk to and uh, what would they want to ask them. So I would like to present that question to you if you'd, uh, if you'd be interested in answering. Wow. Um, that's, a really, that's a really tough question. I guess I would ask the founders... Um, who, who wrote the Constitution, uh, you know, whether or not they actually anticipated um, uh, slavery ever ending in this country, or, you know, whether they had a, a grand plan for reintegration in mind that, you know, that, that sort of worked out or didn't really work out, or, or whether they actually thought we would live um, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, with just essentially white male propertyed uh, people running things. And, you know, I guess since we're, we're talking in Massachusetts, Maybe it makes sense to, to think about the founders, but um, I've always been curious about what they, what the founders would would have thought about um, what America looks like. Absolutely. Today. Alrighty, folks, there you have it, uh, Professor J.J. Prescott from the University of Michigan uh, Law School. I let, uh, thank you again for joining us. It was a pleasure, and uh, if you ever want to come back on, you know, feel free to just let me know, and we can uh, have another discussion. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, that was Professor J.J. Prescott. And then for the second half of the show, we're going to take on your requests and dedications. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages.